0: you can find that, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 11. Get myself organized here. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are their, their voices not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the, of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word, for this revelation you've given us of yourself, and your will, and your ways. And I pray that as we speak this morning, Lord, about your revelation, that our hearts would... Um, be more increasingly oriented to you. And that we would see, God, that your word is our authority. It is the means that you use to bring life to us, to transform us, to grow us, to bring us into conformity to Jesus. And that we would long, God, as the psalmist says, for you and your word. So teach us and strengthen us, God, work in us in accordance with all that you've written. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate Wade and Elise and Autumn filling in for Todd and Alex this morning. If you don't know them, get to know them. They're gonna, they've been here already. Wade's only been here one year. Elise and Autumn have been here for two. And Elise and Autumn will both be on staff with us at His Hill this next year, and Wade's staying for a second year. Um, so you'll see more of them. The technical difficulties, they had the music to put up on the screen, but they just didn't, couldn't load this morning, so I appreciate them um, leading us in that. Um, last week, uh, I read from Second Psalm. We, I preached from Second Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 23, just finishing up on the life of David. And I noted there it's just a tremendous kind of psalm within Second Samuel. Where David, as he looks back over his life, (coughs) excuse me, still have the cough, it seemed that David was saying, You know, of all the things that I'm most thankful for, it's the fact of a personal relationship with God where God spoke to me. And so at the beginning of 2 Samuel 23, if you recall, it says, He called himself the sweet psalmist of Israel and then he says the the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So what he's saying is in that personal relationship with God, God spoke to me. God revealed himself to me. And so it's important to understand what revelation is. Now, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, but just the, the topic, the subject of revelation. And, and, and how ultimately we, I will get, not this Sunday, but to <coughs> the application of is God still speaking to us today and in what sense does that happen? But what I want to do is, is take a few Sundays here, not very many, and, and talk about basically the theology of our Bible. We have the theology of Christ, Christology, the theology of the Holy Spirit, Pneumatology. And, and there's lots of theologies, the theology of angels, angiology. Well, there's also a theology of the Bible, and it's called Bibliology. And the number one subject in bibliology, and you can read all kinds of books, I have many on bibliology, and they always start with the subject of revelation. Because the Bible, we believe, is God making himself known to us. And so basically that's what revelation is. It's an un- <laughs> unveiling <coughs> or a communication wherein God is revealing, making himself his ways, his will known to man, to his creatures. And in that, there's a number of different ways that, that God has done that, which scripture speaks of. We know that, in the, that there were times in the past when, when God in the Old Testament would appear in a human form. We would call that a theophany. He didn't come as a man yet, he just appeared as a man. Abraham, Gideon, even Adam in the garden, Moses, um, they all saw a visible form of God that looked like a man. So We would call that a theophany. There are other times when God just spoke directly from heaven, a voice. So God spoke on Mount Sinai and it sounded like it thundered. God spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration and the three disciples there with Jesus heard him speak. God spoke at the baptism of Jesus and they heard him speak. So many, sometimes it was just an audible voice that everybody could hear. <coughs> there was one occasion when God wrote on a wall, another occasion when He wrote His law on tablets of stone. Um, so those were, were, again, forms of communication. The psalm I just read here, Psalm 19, lists two other forms of communication. The first few verses, where God has revealed himself in nature, in creation. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 1 and says that the invisible attributes of God are known in creation. And then the rest of the psalm speaks about God speaking his word in commandments, in statutes, in ordinances. In other words, God has given word statements. And so theologians look at those two broad, distinct kinds of revelation, and they call the one general revelation and the other special revelation. Well, The the basic thing that distinguishes the two is that if it involves words, it is special revelation. If there are no words, it's general revelation. And it's available to all mankind. Sometimes the General revelation is not creation. Sometimes it's just events that are happening around us, the providence of God that have the unmistakable hand of God on them. We looked last year at the, at the book of Esther. And you remember in the book of Esther, there is no mention of God in the entire book. It's the only book of the Bible, 66 books, that God's name is never mentioned. But you can't read the book of Esther without seeing God all through the book because of his providential dealings. But that would be in the category of general revelation, because it's God obviously working in human affairs, but that he is not speaking. He is working in a way that is visible to all who care to look. That's general revelation. Our subject is concerned more with special revelation. The, The voice of God, the words of God, Revelation is the main topic because because there is no Bible if God has not spoken, if God has not revealed. And then the subject that comes out of that, the next topic in bibliology, is inspiration. And that has to do with, with the book itself. Did God speak in such a way that what He said could be written down on paper? That's inspiration, and we'll spend one Sunday looking at inspiration and what that means. There is also the final product of inspiration, which is the 66 books together, which we call the canon of Scripture, and which is the basis for our authority, because this is, these 66 books, compiled as one book, is our authority for all of life. If there is so, this is really why this is such an important topic. Because if there is no revelation, there is no authority for our life that will that truly not lead us astray. There are still authorities, and every person has a guiding principle, a guiding star. Even an atheist has basic rooted principles that guide him, though he does not believe in God and certainly does not believe in a revelation from God. Every person is operating from some kind of authority. And that authority can be himself, that authority can be the church, that authority can be God's Word. As believers, as Christians, we say the authority for our lives is the Word of God. And so we need to know, is this revelation, which has been inspired by God in written form, is this Bible that we now have in our hands a reliable, accurate copy of the original? Because we don't have the originals. And if this is not a reliable, accurate copy, then it only has authority to the measure that it is reliable and accurate. So if it's not wholly reliable, then it's only an incomplete, inadequate authority. And so we need to look at that. How reliable is this book? How true is it to the original? Mostly true? Kind of true? To what degree can we say that this Bible is accurate and reliable in keeping with the original? Because if it's not... then then it really has little to no authority over our lives. And we're no better than the atheist. Now, the atheist would say, we have no revelation. This is not the inspired word of God. And so they have no mooring. They are like a raft in the middle of the ocean. Now, they can claim different authorities, but when it really comes down to it, we understand there is no authority outside of themselves. So that's a pretty hopeless way to live. That is an aimless, lost way to live. And so we don't have that as Christians. We have a sure and certain guiding light, and that is the Word of God. But the atheist would say, better to be lost than believe in a myth or in a lie. And so we need to have an answer to that, because are we just believing a myth? Is it a lie? to believe that the Bible is the revelation of God? What is the basis for that belief? And really, all of theology, everything hangs on this. And what's happened in in Christianity, beginning in the 18th century, 19th century, really, 19th and 20th centuries, largely because of German theology, there was this anti-supernaturalism, That came into play and it's largely and you can you can chronicle this with the same time that that evolution began to really hold sway over secular society. It had its impact upon theology as well. And there is this assumption this presupposition that the that those critics start with that God does not speak while saying there's a God but he does not speak. And, and we cannot know him with certainty because he simply doesn't speak. And so they begin with an assumption, a presupposition, that the Bible is not the word of God. And so their whole operation is to refute those clear statements in God's word, particularly the miracles. <coughs> in doing so, again, they're stripping the authority away. It's a big thing. And so when that happens, what do you replace it with? If if we do not have a sure and certain authority and the Bible is not authoritative, then the natural thing that men do is replace an external, absolute authority with a personal, subjective authority. And so our experience becomes the greatest authority. And so... Where did that come from? Again, German theology and philosophy, existentialism. And Karl Barth and Bultmann and, and Bultmann, and I'm sorry, I just said him. All these different theologians coming out of the German persuasion were very much influenced by existentialism. And so if the Bible is not the revelation of God, then we no longer have an objective truth that is external to ourselves. What we're left with Is subjective and personal. So it's not propositional, it's experiential. That's where we're living today. We would all like to think that we have not been influenced by those, you know, liberal, out of their minds Germans. I'm speaking facetiously, okay? We have Germans every year that come to his hill. My wife is all German. Uh, May not not have known that, but, you know, I... 100% 100% German, I've got a lot of German in me, so I'm not, but again, it's just historical fact that for whatever reason, I don't know, nobody knows, but German, Germany, with its philosophy and theology, has influenced the world. And all of us in this room have been influenced by German theology and philosophy. And many of us, truth be known, are very existential in our approach to life, especially in regard to religious experience. And that experience, because it is religious, and because it is so real to us, becomes our authority. And not the Word of God. Now I've talked about this many times over the years. And I could stand here all day long, and you could do the same with me, when we could share stories of people we know, who said, when it really comes down to it, I know what God has told me. And what they're basing their told me on is an experience they have had, not the Word of God. That is a dangerous place to be. You can't live that way with true certainty because we can all get our experiences wrong. You know what deja vu is, right? We all had deja vu. And you're, all of a sudden you're in the middle of some situation and you're going, man, I feel like I've been here before. I remember saying these words as the words come out of my mouth. It is so real to us. But it isn't real. You didn't do that before. You didn't dream that. You didn't experience it. Some people believe there's just chemicals firing in our brain that are giving us the sensation that this has happened before. It isn't real. It's no more real than the movies we go and watch. And we can watch those movies, and man, they can be so real to us. You know, you know, I've I've watched animated movies. Animated children's movies. You know, and I'm crying because of the puppy finally made its way home or something, you know? And you know, why am I crying? It's animated. It isn't real. Well, it feels real. And seriously. That's how many of us are living our lives. Where the, re, the, the reality, quotation marks around that, of what we feel is so real, it has to be real. I mean, just one example is, you know, the falling in love, right? And that becomes the governor, the determiner, of truth, how can it be wrong? And I feel so good about this. And we're always and you look at this objectively from the outside and you just want to hit your head against a wall. How can you possibly see this is going to end out end up good? Anybody with any common sense knows this is disaster in the making. But I'm in love, and you can no more talk to that person than you can talk to the wall, right? Because of feelings. And it is real to them. And we are (coughs) oftentimes little better when it comes to handling religious experiences and, and the certainty that we have heard from God. And yet what we have heard may not at all fit with what God has said in His Word. And when it comes down to that, too many times we go, well, then I'm going to go with what I feel, with what I know, and not with what is written. That's a dangerous place to be. When it comes to God's word, is it? Is it the revealed word of God? (coughs) I didn't know this until doing some reading, quite a bit of reading the last couple weeks um, on this subject. In the Old Testament, could you venture a guess how many times the Old Testament claims to be the revealed Word of God? 100? 200? 500? 1,000? 2,000? 3,808 times that the Old Testament claims to be the Word of God. Should we believe it? Remember theology. All theology is based on Scripture. All theology. Pneumatology, Angiology, Christology, Ecclesiology, you can just go right down the line. But when it comes to Bibliology, all of a sudden the critic says, the liberal theologian says, it is circular reasoning to use the Bible to come to an understanding of the Bible. Why? It's not circular reasoning to use the Bible to come to an understanding of Jesus, to come to an understanding of the Holy Spirit, to come to an understanding of sin or of man, armatology, anthropology, all the apologies. The foundation for every aspect of theology is Scripture. So there's no more circular reasoning to use the Bible to understand the Bible than it is to use the Bible to understand any aspect of theology. And the Bible, thousands of times, claims to be the revealed Word of God. Not a few times, 3,800 times in the Old Testament. An interesting thing, over 40 times when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and says, God says, it uses what I just used, the present tense, and doesn't use the past tense. So 40 times, over 40 times, when New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they don't say, God said. They say, God says. In other words, the revelation that God has given is eternal. It is not for one term, time. If God said it in the past, 2,000 years ago, He is still saying it today. It is the eternal Timeless, living Word of God. It's amazing. So we we know from the testimony of Scripture itself that it is the revelation of God. We also know from the testimony of the Holy Spirit that it is the Word of God. This is why simply quoting Scripture in almost any context today will get you in trouble, even among Christians. Right? So you're in a conversation with somebody about some moral issue, homosexuality, whatever. And you say, what? You know, look, you know, that just reminds me of a verse. Oh, goodness. You're in trouble. Right? You Bible thumper. It convicts. I mean, if you were to quote Hammurabi or Socrates or Aristotle... Everybody would be, man, you're a smart guy. You quote the scripture and you're stupid. And you're insensitive. And you're divisive. Go ahead and quote Abraham Lincoln if you want. But just don't quote the Bible. And if you do, just don't tell anybody it comes from the Bible. It's because the Spirit of God is convicting. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. Dividing between soul and soul and spirit, thought, and intention. And the Spirit of God tells us, this is not in the ordinary book. This one's different. There is none other like it. And is that enough? Again, for the skeptic, he would just be sitting here shaking his head. You poor, sorry person you're going to base your whole life on what this book says and the subjective testimony of a Holy Spirit that nobody's ever seen. Is that enough? Well, I think it is enough, but in fact, we have more. And the thing that we, that this is the thing, our faith as Christians is not merely subjective. Nor is it something that cannot can that we have to simply say the bible said it now that's enough but we have more than the bible said it and the spirit of god bears witness to it and that is every aspect of our faith as a christian we many times forget this including the revelation of god's word is rooted in history ours is an historical faith, grounded in empirical realities. This is not a collection of myths and fables. This is a a collection of historical events. Ours is an historical faith rooted in history. Nobody else can say that. No other faith can make that claim. Ours is absolutely rooted in history. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, what's he say? Our faith is worthless. You see the connection? Historical reality. Christ raised from the dead. And from that historical reality, faith. I have faith in what happened in history. God became a man. God dwelt among us. That is historical reality. And that is the ground of my faith. So I want to look at a few passages, and then I'm going to read from a few that are much more articulate and smarter than I am. But if you start with Hebrews chapter 1, <coughs> three passages here that talk about the historical reality of our faith and of revelation. The historicity of revelation. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after He spoke, revelation, long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, you see there's many ways that God has spoken. Not just one way. Many ways. Through the centuries God has spoken. Then verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Revelation in history in a man. That is the basis for us believing God has spoken. It's not just that the Holy Spirit tells us that God has spoken, it's not even just that the Bible tells us that God has spoken, but it is an historical reality. Jesus Christ came and God spoke to us not only through that man, but in that man. He was the living personification of the God who has never been seen. He appointed, the, he is whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, Jesus. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Just go to your right a little bit. 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. In Revelation, it says, From the beginning, we have heard, we have seen, we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. He's speaking of Jesus. We saw Jesus. And in seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus, we were seeing and hearing God. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness of the historical reality And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard. Revelation. We proclaim to you also. Declaration. That you also may have fellowship with with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write. Inspiration. So that our joy may be made complete. I don't believe that this is the revelation of God just because the Bible tells me, though I believe what the Bible says. I don't believe this is the revelation of God just because the Holy Spirit tells me, but I believe what the Holy Spirit says. But I believe this is the revelation of God because it is absolutely rooted in history. Just as much as you and I are. Jesus Christ was born into this world. And he lived 33 years on this earth as the revelation of God. Look at John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was. God. Interesting, many theologians have (coughs) written volumes on the connection between the written word and the living word. I'll spend a little time on that this morning if we can. He who was in the beginning with God, all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Light shining, revelation, but it was not received. In verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Revelation brings understanding. Revelation brings illumination, and that's another topic of bibliology, illumination. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Skip over to verse 14. And the Word became flesh in history. In history, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Historical reality eyewitnesses to these events. That is the cornerstone of our belief that the Bible is the revelation of God. Because Jesus Christ, who he is, and what Jesus had to say about the scriptures, and he had much to say about them. People have gone through and listed all the supernatural things that happened in the Old Testament that Jesus made mention of. And it's almost as though he went out of his way to make specific reference to, and in doing so, legitimizing the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the crossing of the Red Sea, Adam and Eve in the garden. You can just go right through And basically, every difficult, hard-to-believe thing, Noah and his ark, that you could think of, Jesus made reference to and said it was true. That's significant. So if we can believe all those things that are the hardest to believe, then we can believe everything else as well. Jesus is saying, thus saith the Lord, have you not read? Speaking of the written word of God. Now, God is by definition inaccessible to the creature. He's God. His omnipotence, His eternality, His absolute perfection are by their very essence inconceivable to our limited minds. For man to conceive of the supreme being in his absolute nature, he would have to be God himself. And we aren't. Man can't know God unless God reveals himself. Revelation has to be done by God or man cannot know God. So the Lord does take pleasure in in revealing himself. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. In doubting the possibility of revelation, the agnostic questions two things. One, the ability of God to make himself known. And two, the ability of man to know that revelation. Revelation is the basis of all Authority. The answers that the world needs lie outside of the world. Listen to this author. The sense of the world must lie outside the world. If there is any <coughs> value that does have value, it must lie outside the whole sphere of what happens and is the case. And see, even secular agnostic, atheistic philosophers, honest ones, recognize this. If value comes from within the world, there is no value. True value, true significance can only be found outside this world. And if there is nothing outside this world, then we're living in a materialistic world and there is no value. The solution of the riddle of life in space and times lies outside space and time. Humanism is caught in an inescapable relativism. If we are ever to discover the clue to the meaning of reality, history, and life itself, it must come to us beyond the flux of the human situation. And it has. God's personal word has entered the empirical realm where he may be met and known (coughs) and has left a precious gift for his people, a written transcript of the greatest of all facts, the truly liberating fact, the good news of salvation from sin. God has come, God has spoken, and God has revealed the way to have life in relationship with Him. Without this, we are truly lost. Revelation is a gracious, divine activity, a free and voluntary gift, which has as its end... (coughs) The salvation of sinners. Because of Revelation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we have been privileged to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Revelation is not for satisfying curiosity, but for knowing God and His life. Traditionally, Revelation and the Bible were identified as one. Though not identical, they are separate things. Now they have been ripped apart, and the emphasis is now on the personal instead of the propositional. Biblical preaching is more than subjective testimony about meaningful psychological events. And I sure thank God for that. If I had to stand up here every Sunday and tell you my psychological experiences with God, I'm telling you, I'd be bored. You know, and, I, and you just go, man, that guy needs, needs help. He needs medication. Because I'm going to be here one Sunday, and I'm going to be all manic. And the next time, I'm going, you know, I don't know if anything's true. But see, I don't come and declare my experiences with God. That is not the role of the preacher. As David said, he declares what God said. And I'm telling you, man, I can come, I can come to church on Sunday going, God. I'm not even sure. I'd, I think I would have been rather stayed in bed. But by the time I have to stand here and speak what God has said, I am always ministered to. Because I'm not, and this is, and this is the liberating thing of being, a preaching God's word. You never have to come up with something new. You never have to fake it. You never have to relate it to your own novel new ideas and new experiences with God. It doesn't ha- you don't have to be fresh every Sunday. It is the eternal living word of God. And you come and declare what God has said and it speaks for itself. That's great. And you come not wanting to hear what Charlie McCall has to say. Because Charlie McCall doesn't have anything to say. Trust me. That's my wife. But God has spoken to each of us. It's amazing. At the core of the biblical conception is revelation as divine activity in history. I want to read just some more statements of that. That the historicity of revelation, that it is grounded in history. The validity of Christian theism rests on its historical credentials. Faith is not an existential leap into the dark. It is a a step into the light. Amen. Where has anybody ever come up that faith is a leap into the dark? Nonsense. They don't understand faith. They don't understand the revelation of God's Word. Another writer says, We may not begin by presupposing all we seek to prove is true. So we don't just presuppose the Bible is the revelation of God, but we live from the reality of a historical faith. Faith cannot make its way past criticism without an empirical anchor. To segregate Christian conviction from all empirical verification is to make nonsense of it and to go against the precise claims of the gospel to be historical. I like that. Big words there, but I can understand it. With a lot of help in a dictionary. But To segregate Christian conviction from all empirical verification is to make nonsense of it and to go against the precise claims of the gospel to be historical. See, it is true whether I experience it or not. It is true whether I believe it or not. It is true because it is rooted in history. It is historical. I may not believe that men walked on the moon. I may not believe even that Elvis is dead. There's so many things that people don't believe. Okay, But I'm telling you, there is more evidence that Jesus Christ walked this earth than there is that men walked on the moon. There is more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there is that Elvis died. It is not a faith that is rooted in and simply faith. It is a faith rooted in history. The mere fact of the Bible's claim to authority does not constitute proof of that claim. The witness of the spirit is not without substantive content, and experience cannot establish inerrancy. We'll talk about inerrancy another time. Divine revelation by means of events in objective history is verifiable in principle. And, in fact, faith is not destroyed by having a historical ground, but by not having one. A casual reader of the New Testament cannot fail to notice the pains its writers go to in insisting that the revelation is Christ is open to investigation and objectively valid. Think Paul. In all the different times, he stood between, before rulers and kings and says, This has not happened in a corner. This is historical reality. I have seen the risen Jesus. And there are many witnesses here who saw him alive and saw an empty grave. Everything that Paul was preached. In preaching Christ, he was preaching a man in history. It's a historical faith. Christianity is nothing without its history. I appreciated this. The Spirit creates certitude in the heart on the basis of good and sufficient evidence. The Christ who appeared in history is the Christ who now reigns (coughs) exalted in heaven. Faith is neither a grand assumption nor an unspiritual syllogism. It is man's response to the word of God, the good news as the Spirit attest, the Christ event past and the Christ presence now. I heard somebody say, you know those different times when you were a kid in school and you learned different things. Maybe it felt hard and complex at first, but finally the penny dropped, the light came on, and you go, aha. It could have been in chemistry, it might have been in just simple Addition and subtraction. Go way back. And you realize that 2 plus 2 is 4. Aha. And you realize that take away 2 from 2 and you have 0. And it made sense. Well, as soon as it made sense, now you believe it. And faith is the response to what is rational. God has not asked us to place faith in what is not reasonable, what is not rational. That doesn't mean I'm going to understand it all, because God is beyond comprehension. But He has not asked me to believe contrary to reason. We believe because it is reasonable. And we have had, I trust every one of us in this room, That time in our lives when we go, this makes sense. This is truth. And that step from saying it is true to believing is really no step at all. I mean, you look back and you go, I don't even know there's any separation in time. I saw that it was true, and I believed that it was true. It's almost one and the same. So when you try to explain, when did you get saved? Really, it's the moment you understood and believed that it was true. Now, we all understand there's people who say, "I, I say I understand, I don't comprehend it, who say, I understand what you're saying is true, but I am not going to accept it. Now, that is just the definition of folly. Why would you do that in any other area? There is no area of science or of life where you would know something is true and then not act on it. But when it comes to God, men and women do it every day. The Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield was one of the greatest minds in arguing for Scripture, Revelation, Revelation inspiration, and even inerrancy. And it was Warfield who said that the, the doctrine of inspiration is not, and we're going to get to this next Sunday, we'll talk about inspiration, but it is not an a priori assumption. The doctrine of revelation is not an a priori assumption. A priori meaning um, a prior presupposition. We don't just start from presupposition. Warfield said it is an exegetical truth. We know because we study the scriptures. But he also said because of history itself. We believe, quoting Warfield, we believe in Christ because it is rational to believe in him. Not though it be irrational. For the birth of faith In the soul, it is just as essential that the grounds of faith should be present to the mind as that the giver of faith should act creatively upon the heart. So what he's saying is, God's not going to act upon the heart to believe until God has acted upon the mind. And again, our faith is not a non-intellectual faith. It is historical it is grounded in empirical evidence. It is reasonable. Anything else is irrational. God has spoken many, many times. And He is still speaking today through His Word. It is the eternal Word of God. Read it. Got to be some application here. I said it last Sunday. What is the last thing you would want to give up? I hope it is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you, for many, many believers through the centuries, if they had anything in their possession that they were willing to die for before they would give up, it was this book. They would have all their goods confiscated, have their homes burned down, and even forfeit their lives before they would surrender this book? Were they out of their minds? I wouldn't do that for Tozer in his writings or C.S. Lewis in his writings. But for this book, many, many people have given all before they would give up this book. Why? Because they knew this is truth. There is nothing else in this world that is not tainted by sin and lies. This is the only thing in this whole world that is not in the slightest bit tainted by sin or lies. And without it, we're lost. I'll close this in prayer.